Welcome to the Wabash webinars. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. And of course, Carly Hollinsby is our producer and Paul Myrie is our sound engineer. We will be taking questions uh, later on in the show. If you have a question to pose to our guests on this topic, please email Paul Myrie. His email address is myhrep at wabash.edu. M-Y-H-R-E-P at wabash.edu. Our conversation today is the first of a series of seven conversations with Melanie Harris and Jennifer Harvey. In this series, we are discussing, is, discussing issues of race and racism in higher education because it is time for that discussion. As a matter of fact, it is past time for that discussion. Today, we are focusing on practices, embodiments, and performances of racism on faculties. Specifically, in what forms does racism show itself in faculty cultures? What does it take to identify the, the performance of racism before it happens or even while it is happening? What can be done to combat the visible and invisible practices of racism in a faculty? We know that these issues of racism are contextual and they happen um, in slightly different ways in different institutional contexts. We also know that uh, we need conversation partners to help us live better in these contexts. So our conversation partners uh, today uh, are with us. They have been with us before. They are deep friends of mine and deep friends of the Wabash Center. Dr. Melanie Harris is on the faculty of Texas Christian University. Melanie is professor of religion and ethics, founding director of African-American and Africana studies and college diversity advocate for the School of Interdisciplinary Studies. Melanie is a longtime participant of the Wabash Center. Welcome, Melanie. It's good to be here, Lynn. Thanks. And Dr. Jennifer Harvey is on the faculty of Drake University. Jennifer is professor of religion. She also serves as the faculty director of the Crew Scholars Program. Dr. Harvey is a well-known uh, author on the topic of racism. Um, and has several books on the topic. And I welcome both of you to this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today, as well as for the ongoing conversation that we will have on these important topics. Um, so this topic specifically today, Melanie, grows out of actually a statement that you made on a previous webinar. So I'm gonna start there. You described um, in the conversation acts, racist acts that you had witnessed or heard about in your collective work, in the conversations that you and Jennifer have had, of, of the behaviors and practices that are in schools. So let's start there. Help us, get us started. When, what do people do that are racist? And the reason why we're starting here is, so many of the racist acts, activities, procedures, and behaviors are invisible to most majority culture people. So I thought your description was brilliant. So that's why we're starting there. Help. When people do what they do, what is it that they do? Mm, thank you, Dr. Westfield. That's a gift to be on this call. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Harvey, for joining us again and great conversation. It is interesting that there is a kind of invisibility to the act of violence, racial violence, when it actually occurs. And I think oftentimes it occurs in a faculty meeting. Um, it, but it also can also occur literally in the air, so to speak, uh, in the climate that 
is created in a department or a unit that signals to scholars that there is one way of being, um, that there is a typically a kind of white male way of being an academic. And if one doesn't suit that, if it doesn't fit that role, then one is in, in almost uh, silently kind of left out or marginalized. So some of the acts are um, in the faculty meeting, right, that are kind of practical. Um, there is little space, literally, um, left for the person at the table. So everybody's counted the chairs um, and somehow the faculty of color doesn't have a chair when the meeting begins. Um, and then a moment has to be taken for the faculty person to go outside of the office and find a chair to bring into the office or bring into the meeting. Some of it also happened in faculty meetings which are kind of practical acts, which is the assumption and using um, language that ignores scholars of color and students of color. And so oftentimes um, an example I can give is a budget, um, it, a budget meeting or an item on the budget agenda. Um, let's say a department head mentions that there has been an influx of donations to the department or the unit. And suddenly there are lots of different ideas about how to use that money or how to allocate those funds. But none of those ideas <laughs> have anything to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, in fact, there's some ideas, right, that actually exclude students of color when the conversation kind of moves forward in terms of how to actually brainstorm. So it's typically understood then as a brainstorming session among the faculty is actually a session that excludes students of color or scholars of color and the particular needs that they may have. I think the final kind of practical faculty meeting um, way of invisibilizing racism and, and the ways that racism is invisible to um, oftentimes faculty who are not black or brown um, is this assumption that everybody knows the documents, everybody knows the tenure track, everybody knows what you need to, to get tenure, um, everybody comes from a kind of family of affluence, academic affluence and information. Um, that is to say, oftentimes the assumption in some departments and units is that um, all scholars have parents or uncles or people in their family that have already gone through the academic life and who know the academic life. So in collegial conversation, oftentimes what can happen is a missing of each other. Um, when a scholar of color doesn't necessarily know all of the rules of the academic life, all of the guides of academic life, or is doing the academic life in their own way. <laughs> um, in, for in my, in my um, instance, in a womanist way, right, which means a different kind of pedagogy, a different kind of engagement, different kind of scholarship, a different understanding of epistemology. Oftentimes what can happen missing moment um, that there are some assumptions and that's usually the moment where a lot of racial assumptions um, and racial stereotypes can actually occur and surface um, in the interaction with the white faculty who is unknowing and a, and a faculty person of color. I think beyond that, I, uh, just the kind of structural um, examples um, include the kind of policy making, right? 
of what would actually hinder a scholar of color from moving forward. So in a conversation um, about the policies, tenure and promotion, for example, uh, the scholar of color may raise a question about, about teaching evaluation and how their teaching evaluations will be evaluated with a racial um, justice lens, so to speak, that is an, an aware lens. If the look on the chair's face is a blank stare, and if the look on colleagues' faces are blank stares, then there's a sense in which suddenly the, the education required for a scholar of color, um, for a department rather that a scholar of color may actually be embedded in to educate them on the reality of teaching evaluations, particularly in a predominantly white setting, that then falls on the scholar of color. And that's um, one way that their time gets eaten up. Um, and their energy can get eaten up. And that's so, another invisible way. It not only falls on the scholar, but the, the step before that is it is deemed inferior. It is deemed mediocrity to not know the things that you are, quote, supposed to know, that there is no way you could know. But the asking of questions instead of being encouraged is, is deemed inferior, deemed mediocre, deemed inadequate, and judged in those ways, and then people are punished for this not knowing. Um, Jennifer, go ahead and get in the conversation that when, when Melanie um, talks about and describes these incidences, both institutional and individual, as acts of violence, I have had uh, white colleagues need to, need to hear why those moments are experienced as violence. There's mm -hmm. a genuine not knowing why why it's violence why we use the term violence mm -hmm. yeah um thank you both so much for including me in this conversation um what the what i understand about the reason that that kind of that kind of um uh treatment the sort of pervasive default of whiteness in our institutions the ways that you know uh, someone not knowing is treated as sort of something that means there's something wrong with them. The reason I understand that as a kind of violence is because in every move, and, and that's just one form that it takes, but a move like that where, well, you were supposed to know this, right? Human beings know this. It's, a, it's an othering. It's an othering that sort of falsely and in a supremacist way presumes that the status quo norm is uh, well, normal and human, right? And anything else is there something less than and 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 sort of aberrational about it. It's it's sort of um, so so scholars of color in that moment get um, kind of treated with abject treatment that is literally dehumanizing, and that's that's a form of violence. It's structural violence and it's interpersonal violence. Um, and it also to sort of add a, another layer around it that I think that I see all the time is in addition to sort of the ways there's this sort of silent boxing out that, oh, well, you were supposed to know this, right? Because you, there's this assumption about lineages or whatever academic, um, you know, invisible rules that really, you know them typically if you come out of significant racial and class privilege, right? And gender privilege sometimes too, um, is that then also alongside that when uh, scholars of color, faculty of color, students of color start to press and actually call out that kind of um, abject treatment. Um, 
and name it as institutional racism, then then what comes is a kind of violence that it's a different kind of othering that says, oh, now you're act- asking for exceptional treatment. You're, ask- you're asking for us to sort of let you in because you're exceptional somehow. You don't want to follow by the rules, right? These objective, quote unquote, objective universal rules. You're asking us to sort of change our standards for you. Um, lower, lower. Lower, yeah, yeah. change them, which by, by necessity means you couldn't have lived up to the standards, right? As opposed to, uh, you know, someone saying, blowing the whistle on what is in fact an institutional form of white supremacy. So, um, I mean, it's so hydra headed and, and uh, nefarious that, but it's so much just literally in the, in the very granular cells of the way our institutions have been put together because higher ed is embedded, embed, it was a white supremacist colonial settler project. And until we undo that, right, that's the, that's the default position. It is very difficult for a culture to see itself. Yes. Right? The nature of culture is it doesn't have to be explained. You are immersed in the yes. culture. Yeah, yeah. The, the violence is when I think I'm a part of that culture by credential, by hire, by, you know, not by birthright, but by earning the privilege of being there. And then their description of we excludes me. So when they say we think, we believe, yeah. we have decided, we know, I don't think, believe, or know any of that stuff. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, that, so that we then excludes me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That experience of exclusion that happens almost every day to people of color in higher education mm-hmm. is burdensome. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think that's so well said. I, I think that that burden, um, it's a heavy one and it shows up in interactions in the unit. It shows up in the lack of collegiality. It shows up in often that person feeling like they do not belong and then making choices, even unconsciously. I do not need to talk to my colleagues about my work or my research. And that defeats the purpose of building learning communities, right, for scholars. But it is the case that many scholars of color do not have conversation partners in their own units and do not impart to guard themselves and to protect themselves from the violence that they experience from those same colleagues. Mm. So then in processes of promotion and processes of uh, getting the goodies of an institution, we are then not known and are oftentimes overlooked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, Again, I'm, I'm going to use Jennifer's word, another layer of violence, right? So if we knew you better, we would, we would throw some of these goodies at you. But you don't laugh at the same jokes we left at. You don't get us, mm-hmm. right? So that, that, that daily grind, that daily burden, then is not only a violence that, Melanie, as you said, an interpersonal thing, but it affects our work. It affects our work at the deepest levels. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I know of so many senior and junior scholars of color who isolate themselves. They feel isolated, but then they isolate themselves. And they have to work very, very hard over the course of their career just to be able to be in academic conversation with anyone because the trust has been so eroded uh, over time with the people who they 
work with. And I think there's also the reality, um, a part of the violence I know for many is the jealousy that many scholars, white scholars have of scholars of color, particularly around opportunities that have been designed in order to try to diversify the professoriate. So there are grants, for example, that are particularly designed to create space for academic leaders um, to develop their own and sharpen their own skills. There are research grants for scholars of color. When oftentimes when white faculty recognize that they cannot get those same grants because of their social location, there becomes a moment of genuine jealousy, green envy. And because envy is such a normative um, emotion in our field, because we are academics, jealousy of thought, jealousy of income, <laughs> jealousy, um, this particular jealousy, when it's mixed with a rage, a kind of a, a white rage, can become completely toxic. Well, toxic and weaponized against the person. I get concerned uh, when faculties say, the one or two faculty of color are stars. Oh, the students love them, right? Again, to me, that's another dehumanizing taxation, right? So that means they have too many students to relate to, or either they're stars or they're shunned. Both to me are problematic. Yeah, absolutely. So help us understand, Jennifer, help us understand why those are both problematic. So oh, we have stars, our, our Black, our African-American people, right? So students, students know the pecking order of a faculty. That is not hidden from students. No. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so there's a few things. And so I'll back into the stars problem. But one of the things that occurred to me when you were talking about who gets the goodies is that you know, a desire to name that also one of the risks that happens is as we do begin to try to more proactively and in a sustained way challenge white supremacist climates in our institutions and grow truly inclusive, inclusively excellent environments, as the language we use at Drake, inclusive excellence, um, is that those colleagues, right? So we're, of course, lots of predominantly white institutions talking about anyway, oh, we need to recruit and retain faculty of color. Well, what we do, as you were, as you all were describing the sort of isolation many faculty and scholars experience, and then they don't get, they don't get the goodies, right? Well, then the other thing that happens in these systems is that colleagues of color come as they are, as we're diversifying the institution and what white colleagues see such colleagues as is, oh, I know I'm caring about diversity. Let me make sure I point to all my African-American students that that black faculty member over there <laughs> is here for them, right? Yeah. Let me make sure that this Latina scholar, um, that, that my students know that she speaks Spanish and English and that, you know, and so all of a sudden we, um, we when it comes to, you know, tenure and promotion and these kind of things, those scholars get seen as doing these things that don't ever count for tenure, right? That's right. That's <laughs> you know, right. we you know, students coming in and out of their doors. And so, um, and so, and that's kind of adjacent to the star problem, which is that, you know, if you have a couple of, oh, look, that person's a star. They're not really just a scholar like we all are with all of the human limits, human needs, um, human um, fa fa fallibles. Fa what, uh, Frailties. We're fallible humans, uh -huh. right? Now, if you uh -huh. say that in that, in uh -huh. that uh, uh -huh. sense. 
Um, they're, they're also, I mean, it's the, sort of the, like the reverse of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the, that form of racist exceptionalism, right? You, you, you get to be seen if perfect and untouchable, right? And so then that not only is dehumanizing to that person, but it also sets a bar for everybody else, right? Because who, you know, um, and so, I mean, it's so, it's, it's again, it's, it's a different form of dehumanization because that person's not really a person. They're, they're a, they're a God, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like white supremacy can um, denigrate and romanticize and they're the, they're opposite sides of the same racist move. Well, you become gladiators, right? You, be, you become the, 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 the basketball players of the academy, which is a kind of gladiatorism, right? It's like, what, what is happening? That's, that's just another form of dehumanization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that that can also present a whole lot of challenges, right, for the person who may be the gladiator. Uh, That is to say that they could potentially become workaholics because they really are always trying to be everything to everyone. They could also fall into the trap of not taking care of their health, physical health. And in part because they are holding themselves and are being held to an extraordinary standard of publishing, of presence, of being able to be fully present to students, um, not to mention family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that can actually create illness in one's body and as a person of color. And I think um, we all know of a scholar of color who has perished because of cancer or perished because, or struggled because of stress. Um, and like over, you know, over years, compounded stress, um, not to mention having to deal with racial trauma that's happening uh, because of police brutality and ingesting all of that. There is a lot to consider uh, when we think about the lives and livelihoods of scholars of color and how we have created the climate to either nurture them or to actually create a space for their demise. Mm. So much sabotage happens in the academy. Um, and part of, part of the racist behavior is a sabotaging behavior. Um, but so, so we have good-hearted white colleagues who want to help, who want to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear when sabotage is happening, when violence is happening, when dehumanization is happening. How, what, do, what do they do? How do they attune their ears and their eyes to see these behaviors? And then the next question is, institutionally, what policies and procedures can be set forth? But let's start with the individual first. What can good-hearted white folk do to save this stuff? You know, in my observation, one of the first things I've seen is uh, a white person opening their heart and then looking within. And that usually creates tears and pain. Um, And in the moment, as I've been a person of color in those interactions, it's been a little uh, challenging, you know, because in a sense, what has often happened is that a white person will come and say, I've just recognized that some of the actions that I've done have been offensive. And I just wanted to talk to you, but I'm not sure I need to apologize. And so upon having a conversation and opening the kind of conversation with them about why they felt with their body that something was wrong or something was said wrong, then there's this conversation about, I'm not sure I should apologize. 
so then as a scholar of color, you're kind of um, put back in a context, particularly that may be faith oriented. One might say, okay, is this a pastoral moment? Does this person really need care and compassion? Or are they really working out something around their own white, their moment of white? And I think that um, once you discern that, whether or not it is actually an experience of white fragility that's happening, then you can take a different path. Um, I have found that some white scholars who are open-hearted um, are much more effective at growing in their path as allies when the person of color walks out of the room or walks away and redirects that white colleague within themselves to be in conversation with other white colleagues about the white supremacy that they actually may be embodying and practicing without knowing it. Mm. Now, that has been a self-protective kind of um, path that I think a lot of scholars of color have learned to take in part because the open-hearted, wonderful white colleague simply is confused and frustrated with the fact that they do not know something. Mm. And they do not know something really important. Yeah. Can I just piggyback right on that? Please, yes. Um, because one of the things that I think is critically important, there's this brilliant part, um, for those who have not read Ijoma Oluo's book, So You Want to Talk About Race, it's beyond excellent. Um, we here at Drake, we got, a few of us got some funds to get like circles of reading of it happening. We read like 100, 150 people on Drake's campus read it and staff and faculty groups last year in some guided circles and that's been really helpful. She's got, Aluo has this beautiful, brilliant passage in there, many of them, but where she talks about how white folks, um, we assume that you know, part of the dynamic where white folks are always questioning, you know, Dr. Westfield tells me something racist is going on and I go, well, let me hear more and I'll decide if that really was that. That Oluo talks about how white folks always default to like assuming, well, that's happened to me. And so thus, since it happened to you, it cannot be racist. Kind of like we insert our, we universalize ourselves all the time. And so for my, in my journey, one of the most important things we can do is literally, and this goes back to epistemology, literally knowing that we, there are things we do not know. And if I assume that, just like I want my students to know, the most important things my students can know is that there's lots they don't know, right? And if I assume there's things I do not know, then I decide my job first is to listen deeply, not, hey, Dr. Harris, can I talk to you about your experience here at Drake University? And no, not like that but listen to these kinds of moments which scholars and faculty of color in my experience do all the time of bearing witness to the kinds of experiences that they have and we need to listen and 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 bracket the part where we go yeah but was it really that and literally just go i am going to believe something is happening that i don't even see and it's like almost like a epistemological decision to do that right and over time if you do that long enough, you start to see it. But also, the two other reasons I think that's really important. One is that I think one of the most important things that um, white folks also need to do in terms of action is to realize, I can't exactly fix this. Like, for example, a few years ago, I just started writing our provost and saying, you know what? Scholars of color, when they get, they need a space to be with themselves and they need money to be hosted and even get to buy wine if they want. Like, <laughs> because 
I had heard the suffering, right? And my first move was thinking, oh, I need to go be the ally that helped. No, I needed to be the ally that said, they don't need me there. I need to use my institutional access to get resources to so that they can do what they need to do, right? Um, and so that's just sort of like, because we always assume we're going to fix it too. You know, once we do start listening, no, we need to listen deeply enough that we go, oh, what's the institutional move so that my colleagues who are quite wise about what they need can, can access the resources that they need and deserve to thrive. That, and a lot of times that's going to mean I stay out of the way, but I help move some levers institutionally, right? So um, the last thing I want to say, because this listening becomes this risky kind of thing for, for white folks, is that I also experience white people, myself, I'm sure I have done this. I want to hear, I want to hear, tell me your experience, tell me your experience. And directing a program is, is students of color on this campus, a million times faculty have said to me in the last five years, we want to just hear what your students are experiencing. And early I realized, oh, no, 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 you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that until I'm really clear that there's a concrete on the table, sign on the dotted line in an email, in an email commitment that what you hear is going to lead to some sort of concrete response. Not just, oh, this is like voyeuristic intake for me that makes me feel better. I made space for folks to bear their souls. No, if, if folks are gonna share, there needs to be an outcome. And I want it on paper before, before you get any access to, to you know. So um, anyway, so I just think those moves are really important. If you have a question for our two colleagues, uh, please email Paul Myrie at myrieP at wabash.edu, M-Y-H-R-E-P at wabash.edu. So Jennifer, the, the challenge of what you have just said is that white supremacy is cornerstoned, that there is one, one, one universal epistemology. And for people to do this very difficult and emotional work, it would have to be conceded that there are multiple knowledges in the world. That's a huge step for scholars who have been trained to think <laughs> that they possess the knowledge. Yeah, it is. And yet, and yet, and yet, I mean, those Please of us preach. And yet, those of us that convene under the umbrella of the Wabash Center, who ostensibly are doing work in theology and religious studies in diverse ways, of anybody, we should know better, right? I mean, religious studies. Like, if if we are ways to recognize diverse truths like that that epistemological um uh humility mm -hmm. is 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 like the only path forward i don't know who is and in theology even if those of us trained in christian theology that has you know so many pitfalls and perils we should at least know we're talking about you know ontological <laughs> truths we the move you know the first move we teach our students is the moment you know that you've made a capital T truth claim in a class on theology, you have gone too far. That's right? right. You're done. You're done. Sit down. <laughs> I have to say, like, I feel like colleagues in theology and religious studies sometimes mm -hmm. in liberal arts education have been my best partners in disruption because our, our training at least ha should build in that methodological humility. 
where I get, where I find them, I have the most challenges because I'm not in theological education in my formal institution is, you know, then with faculty meetings where I'm trying to talk to the pharmacists, you know, or like folks for whom a, a different way of thinking about knowledge and truth is really, um, so, I mean, we should know better. We should just know like epistemological humility. If we don't have that, then we really don't know anything about our fields. So Melanie, if, 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 if we don't have the strategy of asking the black people or the people of color what to do about racism, because both of you have just taken that strategy away, thank you. Stop asking the oppressed people what to do about oppression. If the people, the majority culture people, if the white people have to act on these violences and they are then, as Jennifer said, disruptions, help us understand how to live with disruption. Mm. Mm. Wow, good question. Thank you, Dr. Westfield. You are so good. <laughs> good, good. Uh, the gift, I think, of living in the tension is uh, being open to the reality of the creativity that can occur in the tension. Um, I have always loved the work of Marcia Y. Riggs because she talks as a woman's ethicist a lot about living in the tension. And then there are lots of different uh, womanist homileticians and um, many homileticians and African-American kind of preaching that talk about the tensions and the conflict even in the life and the story of Jesus Christ. There is a sense, I think, that all of us are feeling in that doing any form of justice work is going to mean that you will be living in the tension, that there will be moments where you don't know and feel like you're being pulled in the multiple of different directions. I think this is one of the uh, spaces where I, I appreciate your work so much, Dr. Harvey, in part because a lot of times the experiences of living in those tension, they explode and bring to the surface the kind of moral compass that we actually have. And it reveals whether or not that moral compass is whole or mm -hmm. fragmented. Mm -hmm. If we do find that our, in our own moral system, somehow white supremacy has uh, dug its heels in or dug its claws in, so to speak, and that somehow an, an idea that we are better than someone else based on our race and our gender and our sexual orientation, if that is a part of what helps you make ethical decisions every single day, then it's likely that you'll be meeting several moments of and I think um, in many ways that can create cognitive dissonance. Mm. Um, and many of us struggle, right, as academics. I think a lot of masking can happen there, a lot of paths of, of living a non-authentic life in order to just make it, um, just get tenure, just seem like the perfect academic. Um, so I think that the, the kind of balm, if there is a balm or antidote, to that is to recognize and accept the tension mm. and to begin to mine your own morality, your own tradition, your own community, the people who help you write articles, your own projects, your own intellectual development as to what are the practices that help sustain you in the tension? What are the theological and intellectual questions that help you to get into the good fight of the and then to keep you in the good fight of the tension. Yeah. Because for most of us, 
we do wake up the next day. And whether you're waking up to a toddler crying or coffee, you know, in the kitchen, we're waking up the next day as academics. Your thinking mind is still present, mm. as a, particularly as an academic. And so hope is still present. Um, and we just got to tap into the practices that will enable us to, yeah, bring that fiery hope, right? Because it's not anything idealistic or uh, Nirvana-like. It's a working hope. Yeah. Uh, and I, Dr. Harris, I love that you just started talking about Marcia Riggs' work because, yes. Yes. I mean, for a million reasons, including the way she talks about a mediating ethic, this need to sort of toggle back and forth between incomplete um, moves, right? To me, that has been intellectually and spiritually probably the most important framework for my own journeying. And I want to explicitly connect that as well to this, Lynn, what you said a few minutes ago about um, we took away the, we took away the go ask your, your black colleagues or your colleagues of color what the work is, right? We took that, that away. So I'm going to sort of put a pin in that because, and do a little white translation <laughs> work, because what some of us just heard when you said that is, but wait a second. Um, but I, but I'm also supposed to not go off and do that work on my own and try and figure it out. Cause I don't know. Right. I've been told I'm supposed to listen to people of color and now I'm being told I'm not supposed to listen to be people of color. Right. And that's a beautiful, a beautiful one of Riggs is uh, the possibilities that comes in this mediating ethic is this recognition that unjust systems have taken away any pure move. Right. We have to be willing and able to toggle. And so that piece around white work is to attend to and challenge and disrupt the racism in our institutions and to not increase that burden on colleagues of color in that journey and to not go and say, hey, what's going on here, right? And add to the burden, but yet be informed and center the voices and experiences of people of color. When I hear that, what I wanna to say to white folks is part of what that message is, is this is complicated, and it, but it definitely means not individualizing the work, right? I'm not going to individualize and go say, can you give me an individual tutorial on what I need to be doing? While but I'm I, crying in your office, please don't come to my office and that's cry. That's right, that's right. But I am going to steep myself deeply in work that's been done, compensated, uh, produced, brilliantly offered. We can engage all kinds of ways of learning those things, centering the voices and experiences and, and knowledge and wisdom of communities of color, scholars of color, but without the expectation and the violence of saying, hey, can you give me an individual tutorial on what I need to do for you tomorrow? Because we don't want to suggest white folks should go off and just say, oh, I think this is the problem. Let me just go do this. You know, that's dangerous too, right? It's this very... But we need to understand, I'm back to the you can't fix it, that this problem is so insidious and so complex yeah. that if it could have been fixed, there have been other good-hearted people before us who would have done that. But because of the complexity, because of the insidiousness, because of um, those who benefit from keeping these racist systems in check and the fact that they maintain that benefit in very rigorous ways, when we come along with kind of a do-do-do-do-do attitude, I'm going to do one thing. It does a disservice to who we are as scholars who are used to grappling with the big complex questions. This is a big complex 
question, right, that needs to be attended to as such and respected as maybe one of the most detrimental things to our society. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Brilliant. I agree. Yes. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's right now, I think is, and we said this, I think, in our last session, but right now is the time for everyone on this call to look at their syllabus and to go ahead and dig in and to assume that if you do not feel like you have all of the knowledge right now or all the books or all the wisdom, that you have a chance to learn and to shift your syllabus. It needs to incorporate something on race. It needs to incorporate something on the dismantling of white supremacy. It needs to incorporate something on the intersections between white supremacy and religion and how it's actually been in, taught in our country, but also how it's actually historically been laid out in our country because that is what students are asking for now. They want to know why there is so much racial division in the country. They did not live through the 1960s. They do not know the voice of King or the song of Fannie Lou Hamer. It is up to us to teach them the theoretical frameworks in the center of those tones, of those voices. It is not enough to find the one scholar of colors book to put on your syllabus that does not show any difference in approach to whatever you're grappling with in your course. Absolutely. That is not the kind of work that we're talking about. Yeah. Right? We are talking about exemplifying multiple approaches by people of color to whatever it is you're grappling with in your syllabus to, and to talk about issues of race and racism as well as the multiple kinds of approaches that come in a, a multiple epistemological conversation and world. Yeah. Paul, I'm coming at you, you ready? Dr. Myrie. Uh, I'm here. <laughs> I, I had to push a bunch of buttons to get there, but I'm here. Uh, yes, here's a question that, um, it's a statement and a question. Uh, racism pervades higher educational institutions in the USA. How might early career faculty and contingency faculty address racial violence in faculty meetings or in departments or in theological schools? So that's a question about the politics of the institution. Will I get fired if I, if I tell people they're racist? Right? What's, how, how, do you, how do you take the temperature of the politics of an institution for this conversation? I think it depends on who you are, how you are shaped, uh, the kind of courage that you have within your own self. And it's important to recognize and to kind of think through uh, one of the really tells you before you speak. Um, and I think there's some wisdom in that. As a scholar of color, one needs to assume that the space is not prepared to receive your body, your person, or your thought. And, being, and having said that, then you wanna kind of think through, if I say something that almost demands um, attention to Black Lives Matters. If I ask a question about whether or not I'm the only one teaching liberation theology, um, you need to kind of think through the, how your comment will be respond, responded to or received. Um, so I do think that there's a kind of wisdom that one wants to craft as a pretenure. 
I also know in this historical moment that I know many free tenure scholars who have literally taken huge risk and the institution has responded immediately because of the moment that we're in. In positive ways, responded in positive ways. ways. That's Mm -hmm. right. Um, Oftentimes the wisdom of that pre-tenure scholar is to have come up with a list already of the things that they need from the institution. That is to say, and if the institution is asking you to serve on a particular diversity committee in the middle of the Black Lives Matters movement, when you are supposed to be teaching full-time online and also attending to students' mental health, et cetera, et cetera, then one needs to be thinking about, okay, that means I need financial support. I need a research fund. I need a travel grant. I need in order to be able to create some mental space for me to be able to do my work in addition to also um, doing the work of the institution. So I think generally speaking, how I might um, answer the question is one, craft your own wisdom, take a temperature of the space, uh, practice in your mind, and maybe even with friends and colleagues about all that. And once you assess the climate around race in your own particular institution, then you can determine the risks that you want to take. And as I said, in this particular historical moment, many folks, pre-tenure and tenured, are taking some extraordinary risk and actually hearing back from institutions positively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would, I would um, completely echo that and, and add to it that also as you take that temperature then, how critically important it is to really scan the environment and see, are there folks I could at least liminally trust for a moment who I could um, ask with that specific list to help to walk with me? And, and there may not always be, I'm not naive enough to presume that there's always gonna be someone findable in that way. But it's, but it's worth asking the question because sometimes there's institutional histories that we don't know about folks who still are an institution who ran interference 10 years ago, you know, whatever, but that, that we might not. And so trying to find ways to uh, wisely and reading the politics, figure out if those folks are there and if they can, if you can find a way to not get too vulnerable too quickly, right, but, but to see if they're trustable, at least for a moment or around a particular ask can be really key. And those of us that are white, and especially those of us that have further institutional history in a place, but I don't think white folks should wait till tenure to be advocates, by the way, um, need to also proactively be making ourselves known and available and seeking out, um, hey, you know, sort of (laughs) making visible that, that, that some of those folks are here that are, are able and willing to walk with so that it's not just you doing it by yourself. One of the reasons why I think this is an important question is that we cannot expect people of color to know how to navigate racist systems. Because you have survived racist systems does not mean you know how to navigate racist systems. So getting allies, having conversations both in your institution as well as beyond your institution, regardless of whether you're a part of the oppressor or oppressed group um, is critically important. That we can't, that, that the study of racism is different than surviving racism. Mm. And people of color also need to get the, the vocabulary of racism, the theories of racism, how racist networks actually function in this society 
under their belt. Just because you survived a rape does not make you a specialist on sexual violence. Just because you survived the violence, the violences of racism does not make you an expert on racism. So reaching out for help in all the ways that we've talked about is critically important. Um, well, Dr. Russell, if I can just say too <laughs> that uh, for those people who may be wondering, where do I get the help? It, it is the WAPA Center. <laughs> I mean, not just this conversation in the symposium, but a number of different colleagues and faculty who work with the WAPA Center, those are the folks that you should feel free to email and say, I was on a Wabash webinar the other day with Dr. Harvey and Dr. Westfield and Dr. Harris, and this is what's coming up for me. Is there an opportunity for me to work or at least hear some of your wisdom? I think most of the folks that I know at least who work with the Wabash Center are welcome and glad to receive questions. Um, and I think that's important to name in part because I know when I was pre-tenure, I was afraid of the terror that I was experiencing to speak it. Rightfully so. You'll be punished to speak this stuff. But yeah. Dr. Harris, before we go to the next question, did you say that uh, people of color, uh, our bodies, persons, and thoughts are rarely received in the white academy? I did say that. I love that. I did I mean, say that. The truth of it is horrible, but I love that phrase. I think that there is such a deep anti-blackness that is mm. in the air and in the milieu of many of our departments and units that even upon seeing you, oftentimes colleagues will shudder on the inside. Um, I've known experiences in my own life where I've actually seen white colleagues trip or fall. Um, and it wasn't because there was a step in front of them. It's just that I think inside of themselves, they could not actually handle the boldness of the blackness that I embody. And some of that is because they don't know many black people, right? So actually to see the fullness of blackness embodied in a person who's also has a PhD is very different for them. It is a moment of cognitive dissonance and it, and it actually can trip them up. Um, and so I, yeah, I think that that is, that is very real. And I think, you know, there are lots of us from different learning contexts. I so appreciate what you said, Dr. Westwood, at the beginning of the call about the context matters. Well, a lot of us are in different contexts. We, some of us are in contexts that are you know, evangelical to the point of colleagues praying for each other, but not talking about race and racial injustice. Um, so they'll pray that you feel better or they'll pray for your family or pray for your children. Um, but they won't actually name racial injustice that's happening and the impact that it may be happening, not just on you, but also on them. Um, but they'll pray, you know, in lots of different tongues. Um, and I think we have to have the boldness to be able to ask the same kind of internal questions. How are you using this ritual, which is to, to be translated as collegial um, and a kind of form of connection? Um, when in fact you're actually missing the mark completely because you're ignoring the violence that's actually taking place and covering it with prayer. Next question, Paul. Can you say more about how anti-blackness and white supremacy is present in institutions, in departments, in committee meetings, in classrooms, and how it can be addressed and dismantled? So that's what we're talking about. I'm going to, I want to follow up on uh, something Dr. Harris just said too, that the, uh, personally, what I always got was, you're so intimidating. It's like, I'm so intimidating. But 
I walked in the room and I sat down. <laughs> I sat down. So, but what, what I learned to hear in that is you're too black. You're too much. There's just a lot of you. So if you could just temper yourself, dampen yourself, quiet yourself, be less creative, be less intellectual, then it won't be a strain for us to be with you. Mm. That's a very debilitating message to get over and over and over again. Yeah. Ashe, it is. And I think it takes a lot of being able to, a lot of resilience to come back from that. And many scholars have, and many scholars are finding that resilience, even as we speak, that it is a lot of work and it is a part of the tax of being an academic, unfortunately, in a kind of white supremacist academy. And that's important for for scholars of color to know, but it's also important for white scholars to know. Um, I often leave uh, faculty sessions and, and meetings and conversations with colleagues saying, if you had any idea how much scholars of color are sacrificing to be here with you. You would think again about asking them to serve on your diversity committee. <laughs> mm. That's right. That's right. Um, go inside uh, the tenure and promotion committee. And there's a scholar of color up for promotion, up for tenure. And there is too often a uh, it's not so muffled behind that door and it's not so coded, even though words of uh, social location are rarely spoken about why this person of color somehow really doesn't measure up. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanna go behind those doors and and first just name that that happens all the time all the time and i feel really clear at this point in my journey that so many and this and this speaks to you know you all saying earlier how how do white folks you know where and how do white folks don't ask you know don't ask what we need to be doing like you know, and, I'm, and, and partly I want to say, like, we know that happens, right? We've heard it a million times. The reason it keeps happening is because we haven't believed scholars of color that it happens, even when we observe it, right? Then even in, in our minds, we will go, oh, but maybe this time it's really true. This person really doesn't belong here, right? Mm -hmm. That's how deep and thick and insidious white supremacy is. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I sort of want to say, like, it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And those of us that have any kind of institutional location who know this happens all the time, quite literally have a moral obligation to start proactively, it's too late to be proactive, but let's say proactive before the next faculty of color person comes up for, for tenure or is hired, to start to ask now in the dean's office, how are we helping educate? Faculty end up on those committees. How are we, because sometimes even just putting it, naming it, putting it on the table, scares white folks into behaving a little bit better. And so, and I'm not a, you know, like, and so I just want, like, for me, this is one of those systemic, systemic issues that when we, we know this happens. And so it's way past time that those of us to whom it's not happening, 
say, hey, guess what? This is a time and energy lift to get this culture shifted. I'm going to take that on. I'm going to figure out who has the decision-making power to make some shifts here. We've got to do that. Otherwise, we are just simply, like, I know we're going to talk about white surprise later too in this series, but like, otherwise we go, oh, I can't believe that happened again. Oh, I can't believe that happened again. Oh, stop it. Like decide where we're going to be, make some inroads and get to work. Cause it takes a long time. Even for those of us that are white, it's heavy lifting to do it. So we can't wait. We need to so start yesterday. That's you know? why, that's why I would call it sabotage because we yes. you sit in those meetings, you, you know, the plural, you sit in the meetings, the person has been in your community for six years. No one has mentored the person. No one has pulled the person aside in any significant way. Yes. No one has said anything critical back to the person about their scholarship, about their teaching, about their service. Six years in, well, real, I, I'm just not sure. They're just, they're just, <laughs> that's sabotage. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of times it is, it's, it's framed in the language of fit. Uh, I was trained at a theological institution, Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Mm -hmm. And for 15 years, I have had colleagues in my institution, in my unit, ask the question about whether I fit because I teach undergraduate students in a college of liberal arts. I'm the only black, only black woman. But there has always been a question about whether I fit. After how many years? 15. Doesn't matter. How many? <laughs> That's right. Uh, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So I, I mean, I say that too, for anyone who has on the line, who has had that experience um, to let you know you're not alone. That's and then for any white person who is on the line and has witnessed or had an inkling that maybe there's some fit conversation or language being thrown around about a scholar of color, you are seeing the truth of racism right in front of you. That's it. That's it. And I think, as you just said, Dr. Harvey, We've got to act. You've got to act. And act in this moment. I do think very rightfully so. Uh, this moment, people have been speaking up and speaking out in new and different ways and needed ways. Um, and this conversation is designed to help us, help us know what to say, help, help us to know when to say, help us to be generative in our disruption, not just uh, disrupt for disruption's sake right, but to bring some healing, to bring some new policy, to bring some healthier, uh, more healed communities together. Um, to our viewers and listeners, our website, the Wabash website, has the dates and themes for the coming sessions with uh, Dr. Harris and Dr. Harvey in this series about racism in the academy. So please check our website for this webinar series. As well as I want to uh, encourage people that the, Web the Wabash Center is convening a year-long virtual symposium in what we're calling mobilization pedagogy. Yes, you heard it here. We're making this up as we go. But I'm going to write an article about mobilization pedagogy. The virtual symposium is, is entitled Becoming Anti-Racist and Catalysts for Change, and it will be led by Drs. Harris and Harvey. Uh, the unique symposium will gather a cohort of colleagues who are willing to lead a faculty project in a particular school in that particular context on anti-racism work and justice work for your faculty. The applications uh, for this virtual symposium are October 5th. 
So to get the information on the virtual symposium led by Harris and Harvey, please see the Wabash website. Thank you, Carly, and thank you, Paul, for the support that our team gives. Um, and thank you to the viewers. This is a difficult conversation um, and a conversation that is needed, but one of the reasons why we don't have it is because it is emotional, is because it too often reduces the blaming and shaming and feelings of guilt and rage and all that kind of stuff. So for us to model, for the, for the three women to model, you know, you can have a conversation about this important topic without blaming, shaming, or reducing to people to puddles of tears and, you know, rock throwing and rage and all those kind of things. So uh, to my friends, I thank you that this very important conversation um, is life-changing for many of our colleagues who don't have conversation partners in their own context. Um, so I pray your strength as you do this difficult work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Westfield. Thank yeah. you and strength on the journey for you as well. Thank you, Dr. Harris. Thank you, Dr. Westfield. It's been so good to be with you. And we are out. <laughs>